0: other groups who are have leadership roles and initiatives before they come before council I, I, and so that's just my, my appreciate my statement it. i know i've spoken to the yeah. communication
1: team i think uh angela would have been able to ca- catch a lot of this stuff before yeah. it was said but i appreciate that very helpful feedback we will do better at that councilman parity so uh,
2: i think um Piggybacking off of Council Member Gonzalez Gutierrez's questions and just stepping back a bit. I mean, the reason, so we're sitting here asking about training. We don't know because they're private hired security. Um, We don't train them. They're not post-certified. Police oversight, public safety oversight is one of the most difficult things that municipalities do. All of you who have been there for far longer than I have have grappled hard with this. We're working on it. We're dug into it. We can't outsource it. We can't put a city vest on private security guards. I just, I'm... I'm honestly really shocked that we're doing that. I saw one of those guards when I was driving into work today with his yellow vest over his private security uniform. Mm-hmm. Some of these security contractors are allied security. Yeah, let's um, go. City Council cut off their contract after they damaged Rivero Sinet's brain and took away his ability to do art at, at an RTD station. I mean, this is, to me, this is a non-starter. I understand it's happening and it's starting, but there is no version of this. It, it's not a tweak around the edges. It is that we cannot put Denver City uh, we cannot be um, validating and um, putting our imprimatur on private security they don't get the same kind of training as police i've sued private security firms i've sued police mm-hmm. the training is in no way comparable they are not p- post certified they are not police right. and we do not have oversight over them so they the issue is not they, go they are going to hurt someone um, and because we have put our vests on them, we may then also get sued for that, which I don't care about as much as I care about the actual injury. But this is, this is a train that's gonna go down a very bad track. Uh, it's not a question, it's a comment.
1: Uh, great, I'm happy to address that and talk more. I think the difference is not about, the question is about what someone's scope of work authorization is and what they are allowed to do in their current training and capacity. What an allied security member is allowed to do now is no different than what they were allowed to do six weeks ago. They do not have the power to arrest, they do not have the power of detention don't have any power they didn't have previously, uh, nor is that granted through their training or through their partnership with us. The only difference is the communication system they have and the ability for them to be visible to the public is what has changed. And we do have that in, in sites across the city. We have private security and city run sites all around the city currently today that's a common practice so it is actually accurate that we can contract with private security we do that we have done it previously we'll keep doing it the question is what their scope of work is and what they're entitled to do in that contract that does not change and that's linked to what your post certification is in the same way we out we contract with outreach workers who contact folks that are unhoused every day some of those are nonprofits that work under the city aegis some of them are nonprofits that work independently Uh, those are all agencies that are partnered and licensed through the city to do work uh, and and step into high-risk situations the question is what capacity and authority do they have in those situations? And those are completely within their rights of training. So happy to talk more, I know it wasn't a question, but I think we're quite clear. A yellow
2: vest is a parent authority. I mean, that's what it is. But it
1: doesn't give you authority to take any intervention on public safety that you couldn't without a badge and a uniform as a post-certified officer, any more than that person could do if someone walked into Republic Plaza or into Milk Market today or into RTD or into Union Station today. That's the same capacity that Union Station has or RTD has. And so that is unchanged. You can un- not like that, but that the law is unchanged and what they're able to do. Um, I think what, what we want to do is actually make sure there's a more unified uh, approach for civilians so they know who people are, what they're able to do, and what they're not able to do, which I think this is a smarter version than what we had before. But happy to talk more about it. Council Nines.
2: We also have exec session, uh, so just want to flag that and uh, not to interrupt your comment. It's
3: just Nines. real quickly, there's no fin gov today because yeah. general services wasn't ready to present, so um,
2: we've got a little bit of extra time. Thank
4: you. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, and uh, just uh, in the conversation about um, you know making sure that we have the appropriate outreach downtown, there is a conversation. Um, uh, I, I've talked with the partnership. I've talked with the business improvement district, which is part of the partnership, and I've also talked with private businesses um, about this uh, kind of patchwork kind of solution that um, that it, that's happening. Um, the bid funding mechanism was set up before Lodo was truly the vibrant place that it is today, and um, and so you know the downtown business br- business improvement district has funding uh, for twelve and a half million dollars for uh, one hundred twenty blocks. Um, Cherry Creek has uh, eight and a half million dollars for sixteen blocks, and uh, and so there's a bit of a funding disparity there. Um, and I would I would be excited to see uh, our um, downtown business improvement district um, have uh, the funding to to um, augment our STAR program specifically downtown. I know that uh, we have a lot of.
5: Welcome to the Land Use, Transportation, and Infrastructure Committee meeting of Denver City Council. Full coverage of this session of the Land Use, Transportation, and Infrastructure Committee begins
0: now. Good afternoon and welcome to another fun-filled committee meeting for the Land Use, Transportation, and Infrastructure uh, Committee in Denver City Council. Today is... January 6th, Tuesday, and my name is Darrell Watson. I am chairing the committee this morning. I represent the fine District 9. So before we jump into our um, meeting, why don't we have some introductions from council members? And we'll start on my right with Councilmember Hines.
4: Good afternoon. Uh, Chris Hines, Denver City Council District 10, or Denver's Perfect 10.
2: Hi y'all I'm Sarah parody I represent the city at large.
3: Good afternoon Amanda Sawyer district five.
2: Good afternoon Paul Cashman
0: South Denver district six and Mr. Chair you you missed by a month this would be
1: February (laughs) six.
6: Good thing we have a fact checker on staff. Alvidres, (laughs) Lucky district seven. And here we have my colleague.
5: Thank you very much, keep talking.
3: Hello, good afternoon. Diana Romero Campbell, Southeast Denver District four.
0: And we'll pause, there you go. Councilwoman Lewis, we're just doing introductions. Chantel Lewis, District eight. And yes, so it's been a long February so far. I feel like it's January, but we all know it is February 6th. Thank you, uh, council member uh, Cashman. Uh, we have a, a very brief uh, uh, meeting today. We have one presentation um, from Community Planning and Development and a briefing. So let's ask uh, Tony, do you mind coming on up.
7: Yeah, uh, so good afternoon. Uh, my name is Tony Lechuga with Community Planning and Development and I am here to present a legislative rezoning sponsored by Council Member Sawyer um, for the Hale Neighborhoods. Um, so let's dive right in. Um, so let's start with what exactly the request is behind this presentation. And I'll say this is an action that, this, uh, that the council has seen um, from other council members in terms of legislative rezonings. Um, but we're going to do our due diligence and go through all of the planned guidance just to make sure that everyone at home uh, understands why uh, community planning and development is uh, recommending approval and moving this to a full council vote. So in terms of geog- uh, the request, Uh, The council member is requesting that we take all of those single unit districts within the Hale Statistical Neighborhood, so that would be ESUDX, ESUG1, and USUC1, and rezone all three of those districts to allow for property owners to construct ADUs should they desire to do so. Um, Nothing else about the land uses would change. That's the SU in the districts. They would all remain single unit districts um, with an addition of... A one. Uh, in terms of location and context, so we are talking about Council District 5, represented by uh, Councilwoman Sawyer. This is in the Hale Statistical Neighborhood. And you can see here, this is the Statistical Neighborhood's existing zoning. Um, so you can see outlined in red the three different zone districts that would be changed here. Um, it's kind of a weird-shaped space, uh, and that largely has to do with more intense zoning to the north along East Colfax, more intense intense zoning to the west along Colorado Boulevard. And then right in the center of the neighborhood, there's this more intense zoning around uh, the Rose Medical Center and the former University of Colorado Health Center there. Um, so everything surrounding that is those SU districts. Um, I'll note that Hale Parkway and Sixth Avenue are designated parkways within the city. Um, so all of the parkway standards and guidelines that apply to those would remain in place. Um, and those generally have to do with the setbacks of properties along those particular parkways. Because ADUs are required to be built at the rear of the property, there is no fear that someone could build an ADU within the parkway uh, setback standards. Although there are two individual landmarks in the neighborhood, one of them is to the north along Birch between 13th and 14th Avenues, and the other one is along 6th Avenue. And those two properties within this rezoning um, would remain Denver landmarks. The regulations over um, alterations and demolitions would still go through landmark preservation. uh, And so this produces no uh, threat to those particular landmarks. In terms of land use, um, notably, because this is taking all the single unit districts and adding ADUs, you can see that most of the properties are in fact single unit residential as they exist today. Um, There are a couple of two-unit and multi-unit residential properties um, that have single-unit zoning. Those presumably are legacy projects that uh, were built before the zoning code was put in place, Um, and then you can see some public or quasi-public institutions as well. Those are largely schools um, or other facilities like that. Uh, These three pictures show the built context of the neighborhood, so uh, that top picture is a typical context within the USUC district. You can see uh, generally, homes that are one to two stories in height on lots that are about 5,000 to 5,500 square feet. Moving down from there, that picture in the middle is the USUDX property, and again, uh, very similar, slightly larger properties of about 6,000 feet and then uh, square feet. And then that picture on the bottom is that uh, ESUG district, uh, which really only fronts Sixth Avenue, and those are uh, very similar in context but much larger properties, their minimum square footage is 9,000 square feet. So let's talk about process. Um, So to date, uh, CPD has followed all of our mandated noticing requirements. This property, uh, everyone within 200 feet uh, of this rezoning was notified uh, November 20th. Everyone again received a planning board notice on January 2nd, planning board held their public hearing in mid-January, and that leads us here today to February 6th. In terms of public outreach, the council member also did a lot of uh, of their own public outreach. They provided property owners with postcards and flyers in August of 2023. They held two virtual town halls alongside um, CPD and other city agencies um, in September. Um, They conducted a public survey that was open to anyone um, through August and September of 2023. And they included um, notice about this action in three council newsletters Um, through August, September, and October of last year. In terms of public comments, uh, the survey uh, received 212 participants, 124 in favor, 78 opposed, and 10 said they were unsure. Um, To date, we've received no comments from local RNOs. um, And from members of the public, to date we've received four letters of support that generally noted a desire to have this flexibility on their own property. Uh, We received one general comment that was neither expressing opposition or support, but sort of uh, referencing that they wanted to make sure the city was noticing any issues that might happen to transportation or infrastructure. And we have received 18 letters of opposition, most of them noting what they perceive as issues related to traffic or trash, um, or changes to the built environment that might change the character of the neighborhood. When this item went to planning board back in January, they voted unanimously to recommend approval to the city council. Um, Their justification for that was noting that there's significant plan guidance that supports ADUs, especially through the legislative rezoning process. So now let's jump into the actual review criteria. Uh, And for anyone um, online or in the chambers who doesn't know, through legislative rezonings, we actually only have three review criteria. Um, So we are weighing whether or not this proposal is consistent with adopted plans, whether it will produce uniformity of district regulations, and whether or not it will further public health, safety, and welfare. So let's go through all three of them now. So in terms of the first one, there are actually three adopted plans that are applicable to this site, and we'll start with the first, Comprehensive Plan 2040. Um, so staff believes that this does in fact meet many of the goals of Comp Plan 2040, and I will not read through them all here, um, but in terms of equitable, affordable and inclusive, we believe that this will create a greater mix of housing options um, and it could potentially increase the development of senior family, senior friendly or family friendly development. Um, and I'll explain a little bit how we get the, to, to that in a, in a bit. In terms of strong and authentic neighborhoods, we do believe that this will ensure uh, neighborhoods have a mix of housing types. And in terms of environmentally resilient, we believe that this will promote infill development where infrastructure and services are already in place. Moving on to Blueprint Denver. Um, So in Blueprint Denver, we have neighborhood contexts that determine sort of that first uh, letter of the zone district. For this particular neighborhood, the areas in question are urban edge and urban. Nothing about the proposed zoning would change that. Those uh, areas that are currently urban edge would remain urban edge and those areas that are urban would remain urban. There's one small area uh, that doesn't meet that criteria, and that is uh, one that's listed as a special district. Uh, You'll notice right around the intersection of Claremont and 12th Avenue, there is uh, an area that's labeled special district. What's currently there now is uh, a mental health services facility. Um, To the north of that property are two parcels that are currently open space associated with that facility. They are zoned in a single unit district. And since we are not changing any of the single unit districts, we are proposing to maintain those as SU districts with the addition of the one. This plan guidance of course suggests if that property owner wanted to come in and change that designation, there might be plan guidance for that. In terms of place types, this is very similar as well. We largely see that this is low residential. Um, with a few properties that are noted as low-medium residential. In both of those place types, Blueprint Denver suggests that ADUs are appropriate, and therefore we believe that this particular zone district matches the intent of these place types. In terms of street types, um, you'll note many of the avenues throughout here are collectors or arterials, which are noted for uh, higher throughput volumes, uh, but most of the area is, is, is local streets, which are noted for being primarily residential. Um, Again, you'll see Hill Parkway and Sixth Avenue Parkway, as I said before, designated parkways, and will remain that way. In terms of growth areas, this is considered all other areas of the city. So where we're not expecting intense growth by 2040, we are expecting modest uh, modest development to allow for about 20% increase in housing by 2040. That's across the whole city, not just this particular location. Um, In terms of blueprint policies, there are three that I wanted to call out very specifically. The first is Housing Policy 4, which specifically says to diversify housing choice through the expansion of accessory dwelling units throughout all residential districts. Uh, Very explicit that this is an action that should be taken in this type of district. Uh, General Policy 11 goes on to state that we should implement plan recommendations through city-led legislative rezonings and tax amendments. So this is taking that exact language and applying it. And then general policy five suggests that we should integrate mitigation of involuntary displacement of residents and or businesses into major city projects, um, including analyzing the potential for the involuntary displacement of lower income residents, which we did through this process by doing an equity analysis because of the scale of this rezoning. So let's dive into that equity analysis now Um, So this particular area has an equity score, uh, an access to opportunity score that is higher than the citywide average. It's actually really good. There's good access to healthcare, open spaces, and fresh foods, which suggests that a modest increase in residential density through ADUs is opening up that access to opportunity to more and more people. Um, This will increase housing in that area. In terms of vulnerability to involuntary displacement, we do note that this neighborhood has three very different scores with the Eastern half of the neighborhood scoring a zero, meaning these people are less vulnerable to involuntary displacement. Whereas people in the Western half of the neighborhood, those scored a two and a three, meaning that that half of the neighborhood contains people that might be more vulnerable to displacement. We believe that allowing ADUs in this area will expand housing options, which provide for a smaller, a lower cost housing option. They create a wealth building tool for current residents by allowing them to build an ADU and remain in place in the face of potentially rising taxes on their properties. Um, And it allows current residents to stay in place, whether that means that uh, an aging resident has their family come and live in the home and they live in an ADU, or a current resident has an aging parent who they would like to have come live with them in their own space in an ADU. In terms of housing diversity, we see similar things. In the Hale neighborhood, there is a lack of housing diversity. Um, There is sort of a ubiquitous housing type as demonstrated through the pictures I showed. Um, We believe that allowing ADUs in the neighborhood will actually increase housing diversity. Um, It will allow for new housing types that are typically smaller and lower cost um, than what you find now, which are uh, largely single unit homes. And in terms of jobs diversity, we see this as a great opportunity for adding new residential um, properties where there's really good jobs diversity. Um, Notably because of the retail density along Colfax, Colorado, and the area around the Rose Medical Center, there's great access to a diversity of jobs in the area. Um, It does lean more towards retail than anything else, um, but having people live close to those retail jobs is important um, for increasing jobs diversity. So let's move on to the East Area Plan, which uh, I'll be honest in many ways mirrors Blueprint Denver. Um, This plan was passed in 2020, so it's one of our newer plans. Um, It maintains that this area also be low residential, low medium residential, and that one little parcel that I told you about um, off of 12th and Claremont that is listed as campus, but today retains that single unit zone. The East Area Plan is also extremely explicit in its plan language about us pursuing this type of action um, land use and built form goal six says that um, we should thoughtfully integrate accessory dwelling units in appropriate locations. We believe that this does that. It also suggests that we implement adopted citywide policies through the expansion of ADUs throughout all residential neighborhoods. Again, this action does that. And then very specifically in the Hail section of that plan, there is HAL land use, uh, land use recommendation 2B that says to integrate accessory dwelling units in appropriate locations. So we, we see this as very explicit language that this is a, an appropriate action. <clears throat> in terms of uniformity of district regulations, this will necessarily result in that through application of the Denver Zoning Code. And we believe that this will further public health, safety, and welfare in three ways uh, that I've sort of already stated, but will reiterate here. One, it expands housing diversity. It provides opportunities for a different type of resident to live in this area than potentially currently can. Two, it um, provides flexibility for existing residents of Hale to build an ADU and increase their own wealth, which allows them to stay in place, or to uh, create family housing on one single lot. And third, we think that this rezoning will allow infill development through minimal context sensitive increase in housing units. Um, because of the particular design standards in the code for ADUs and their location at the rear of the property, uh, we believe that um, this allowance for extra housing options will maintain the character of the neighborhood and therefore uh, maintain public health, safety, and welfare. And because we believe that it meets these three criteria, we recommend that uh, this committee move this on to a full hearing of the
0: council. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, thank you so much, Tony. Uh, Councilwoman Sawyer.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, just wanted to say thank you to Tony um, for all of the work that you did on this. We really appreciate it and great job. Um, wanted to flag for my fellow council members that if you go into Legistar um, under this action item and you click on um, number seven, which is our application for this rezoning, Um, We have included, and it starts on page 13 of a 77-page application, um, the survey data that we use to um, make our determination of whether to move forward with this rezoning or not. Um, So I will just say, uh, in my office there, we feel very strongly that we need to make sure that people know what is going on and have an opportunity to share their thoughts on it, whether they agree or disagree. Um, we did this action in the montclair neighborhood um, last year in 2022 and 2023 and the residents of the montclair neighborhood were very clear that they did not want to rezone for ADUs. so we did not move forward with that application Um, the Hale residents it was close but they the majority um, of residents who responded to the survey uh, did want to move forward i will say um, that you can see a, ma- a heat map that shows um, where we received responses from, you can see the numbers, um, you can see comments um, for, uh, you know, for why people didn't wanna move forward. But most importantly, you can see the slide that's, that shows we received 382 total responses to this survey. We only used 212 of them, and you're gonna ask why. The answer to that is because the no's always turn out, right? And so we had multiple people who filled out this survey 20, 25 times um, in order to try and skew the results towards no. Um, we have a, a way on the back end, Logan and Owen are here and they can talk about their process if you have questions about it, um, where we can see who filled out that survey and we know that they filled it out repeated number of times. So we took those out, every um, household got one response. Um, And so what we found um, within a 95% confidence level um, and the margin of error of 6.5% is that even with both of those things, the the majority of support. So even if we took um, the majority of support that we received and we subtracted 6.5% from that, right? So worst case scenario, our numbers are totally skewed. It was still over 50%. Um, responses in favor of this so I just wanted to flag that for you because I do know that we received um, a number of people who came out during the planning board hearing to speak against it we received a number of um, emails and so did CPD um, from residents who are concerned about this and and that's right and that's fair right they they can be concerned about this and it is absolutely their right to share that with us Um, our office tried very very hard to be fair Um, to have a clear mathematical process um, that is statistically valid that shows that the majority of residents who are affected in this neighborhood support this. Um, So I just wanted to, um, again, thank Tony. and, And I will have, I will say, Um, not just tony right we had the assessor's office at these community meetings we had excise and license at these community meetings we had um dotty and dpd at some of these community meetings so um you know we tried very hard to um provide access for our residents to all um of the answer the people who can really answer the questions that they've got right which is around adus and short-term rentals and adus and crime and adus and parking and all the things, um, and I will say, you know, with all of that, we, we do have a statistically valid survey that shows that even if you take the full margin of error into account for the no's, more than 50% of the respondents are still supportive of this. So we're proud to be moving this forward. We recognize um, that it might be a little bit contentious. And like I said, that's okay, that's democracy, right? Um, but we are really excited to bring this in front of council. Um, and I just wanna give a huge shout out to Owen and Logan, um, who did a lot of, let's be honest, they did all the work on this, Um, and my fantastic staff um, who got this done. So thank you both very, very much. I am truly appreciative of you and your partnership. Um, So thanks, Mr. Chair.
0: Uh, Thank you, Councilwoman Sawyer. I'm gonna give uh, other council members an opportunity to chime in if they choose to. We'll look around the room. We're seeing no other questions, no other hands up. Um, so for committee members uh, a thumbs up if we're good to just simply moving this forward looks great tony we'll be seeing you in an action-packed meeting in front of council great to see you uh coming up next chrissy bright i know i'm pronouncing the last name incorrectly maybe i did it correct um front range passenger rail district uh, briefing And we see sneaking up behind Chrissy, the Honorable Christopher Nevitt. Thank you for your presence here at the Council. We can't see you on the camera, but that's good to see you here.
4: Dr. Chris Nevitt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Chrissy, the floor is yours.
8: Awesome. Um, thank you all so much for having me today. If I need to speak louder, please let me know. My name is Chrissy Bright. I'm Chief of Staff at the Front Range Passenger Rail District. I recognize that I have briefed a third of this committee last week. So for all of you, this is round two. Thank you so much for being here. Um, our general manager, Andy Carsian wishes he could be here today. He's actually across Broadway right now, testifying on an administrative cleanup bill. Otherwise he'd be here as well. Um, before I start my briefing, I'd like to watch a video we just put out. So I will cue our cameraman. Thank you.
9: the Colorado Front Range. Where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains. Where cities, towns, and neighborhoods each have a unique character, yet all share the legacy of a pioneering spirit and a belief in what's possible. Where world-class educational institutions are making groundbreaking discoveries and preparing the next generation to lead. It's a place where people want to be. And for the five million of us who are lucky enough to live, work, play and raise families here? It's home. Over the next 25 years, Colorado's population is on track to nearly double as we grow by more than 3 million people and most of them will have cars. This growing population presents new challenges like making sure we can keep Coloradans moving when our roads just weren't built for this many cars. Yet in this challenge, we see possibility. At this key moment in our state's history, we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build a new way to connect Coloradans. A new way to travel along the Front Range that's fast, safe, reliable, and comfortable. Front Range Passenger Rail will provide an opportunity to link communities across the Front Range with modern and efficient passenger rail service. From the Chili Festival in Pueblo to the U.S. Olympic Museum in Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs, to basketball football baseball and hockey games in denver from boulders Flatirons and pearl street mall to the nationally recognized breweries of fort collins intercity passenger rail service along the front range will connect coloradans to opportunities adventure and each other now with new sources of federal funding and a commitment from state leaders and local communities colorado is at an exciting juncture and front range passenger rail service is within reach join us as we unlock new opportunities to connect with one another and chart a new path forward to meet the transportation needs of tomorrow.
8: Awesome, thank you so much. Do you all see the slides now? Perfect. Okay, awesome. So just to kind of define some of our key terms, front range passenger rail is an idea for a new inner city train service. That's a kind of train service we don't currently have in the front range. What we're initially looking at is a service from Pueblo through Denver all the way to Fort Collins with stops along the way. We also have a longer-term vision of connecting to Wyoming and New Mexico. Um, we are looking to use existing freight tracks. By operating on the freight tracks, we can minimize the startup date and accelerate, um, accelerate startup date and minimize costs. Right now, we're looking at um, stations in nine primary markets. Those are Pueblo, Colorado Springs, Castle Rock, South Metro, which essentially is Littleton-ish, Denver, Boulder, Longmont, Loveland, and Fort Collins. As I mentioned earlier, we're looking at inner city rail, and that is the choo-choo on the right. That kind of train is meant to connect major cities across the state. What that means is that the train can reach higher speeds because it stops less frequently, and the corridors tend to be longer lengths. Most of us in Colorado, especially in the Denver area, are more familiar with commuter rail, and that's the train on the left. That's really designed to connect kind of a suburban area to metropolitan core, Um, shorter corridor length, stops more frequently, kind of serves more of a commuter market. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I'm from the Front Range Passenger Rail District. We are a new special district that was established by the state legislature in 2021. We've been up and running for about a year and a half now. And we have a statutory mandate and kind of a charge to design, finance, construct, and operate and maintain a new passenger rail system along the Front Range. So we are a new government with the sole mission to make this happen. Um, As you can see on the map, there's kind of a blue border. That is the Front Range Passenger Rail District border. Um, Amongst some of our other kind of duties and powers, we are a taxing district. So, following approval of voters in the district, we're able to levy taxes to actually construct and operate and maintain the service. Um, we also be working with local communities to support station development as part of this process. Um, those nine major markets are all at varying stages of kind of passenger rail readiness, and most stations don't, have, most communities don't have um, a Denver or a Union Station. So, we'll be working with them to kind of make their own version of a community hub. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, I am joined by Chris Nevitt. He is one of our board of directors. He represents Dr. Cog. Um, we have a really robust board of directors of 24 members, 10 of which are appointed by local MPO, TPRs, so the Metropolitan Planning Organizations, Council Governments. Um, we also have six governor appointments. In addition, CDOT has an, a chair, has a member on our board, and we have seven non voting members from the freight railroads that will be operating on their tracks. Amtrak, RTD and other partners. So we're really proud to have such a diverse board that is able to bring such decision makers to the table. So where are we at today other than making fun videos? Um, It was recommended that I start by just talking briefly about Union Station. That is the place we're looking to have the train stop within Denver. Um, I share the schematic just because I think it sort of points to the, um, the unique context that Union Station is in. Um, we would be looking to operate service starting by u- using the train hall. That's the current, um, that's kind of the big white sort of clamshell on there. That's where the, right now, the ski train, the Southwest, the um, California Zephyr, the RTD commuter rail lines go out of. Um, that said, the quirky part is that our primary way of getting there is these tracks to the far left. It's, you can barely even see them, those are the freight tracks. And I mentioned this just because um, part of working through the engineering and planning right now is working through how best to get in and out of kind of that Union Station train hub. We also recognize that many people are using the train hub right now. Um, Right now it is owned through kind of an interesting cooperative of RTD, Denver Transit Partners, um, City and County of Denver. And so we'll be spending a lot of time over the next year sort of working through how best from an engineering perspective to get in and out of the train hall and then also from kind of an operations and partnership agreement, how do we actually make that work on paper? In addition to to figuring out Union Station, we're also working on a service development plan. This is a federal planning process we're doing with the Federal Railroad Administration. Essentially what we're doing is kind of using this plan to make a business case that really defines what our service will look like, kind of finding that middle ground between what works on paper financially and what do our users and our future riders really wanna see and will be an attractive service to them. We're looking at things like route, again, solidifying those stations, looking at service frequency, onboard amenities, what our fares will look like, and what kind of improvements we'll need to construct in order to operate this service. Um, we are in the middle of this planning effort right now, are looking to have it completed end of this year. Um, and just to clarify, this is looking for that entire service plan between Pueblo and Fort Collins. Um, a piece of exciting news, as part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, um, i think many of us have heard that our president is a train guy and we're real fortunate to be able to be a recipient of his of his appreciation for trains um, as part of iija a brand new federal program was created called the corridor identification and development program it is really a brand new kind of comprehensive boot camp to get new passenger rail corridors just like ours off and running um they put a call kind of a call for projects out there last year and this december we were accepted into the CIDP program. What it means is that we get initial seed money to kind of kickstart, or in our case, sort of advance some of our assistant planning efforts. And then we're in a preferential position to get federal money at a really competitive 90-10 federal to local match. Um, As you can see from the picture, Governor Polis joined us in December at a press event where we celebrated being accepted into this program. Uh, I am sure that many of you have been in Colorado politics for a while or are not new to a train conversation and we really recognize that. I think that we were in a fortunate spot where we're able to build on 15 years of various degrees of advocacy and planning. Um, With the Front Range Passenger Rail District now established, we have that governance and funding arm that did not previously exist. We have strong state support from our governor's office. And then again, with the new funding and capacity building programs for the infrastructure law, we're really at a once in a lifetime opportunity to make this happen. Um, but it's, you know, it's easy to say that and it's harder to get there. And I just wanted to share for the committee members kind of our very high level roadmap of all the different partnerships that we'll need to activate to make this happen. Everything from financial support in terms of going to the voters for tax paying support all the way up to the federal government for support. Um, we will be needing to go to the ballot of course and so how do we have successful ballot measure? activating coalitions, local leaders, chambers of commerce, organizations that have a vested interest in the project. Um, As we work through station planning and making stations happen in parts of the corridor where it doesn't currently exist, we'll be working with developers, landowners, downtown business organizations, and local governments. Um, A big thing that we hear about is, you know, great, I'll get on the train, I'll get off the train, then what do I do? And we recognize how crucial that kind of first and final or first and final miles connectivity is and we're working with local transit agencies to really kind of connect sort of um, the multimodal network to the spine that we're building. And then again, just in order to make all this design, planning, engineering happen, it's partnerships with our our state DOT, with the railroads, RTD, and the federal government. So just wanted to show you all that um, we are excited to be leading this charge and also recognize how much the success of this project is dependent on partnership with others. Um, One more kind of slice of the pie, just wanted to give you a sense of what we're looking at this year, kind of our roadmap for 2024. We are currently doing robust financial modeling to get a stronger sense and kind of financing plan for what will it cost to operate this service and what kind of financing and funding sources are available. Um, We're collaborating with some core stakeholders regarding a kind of a decision around ballot language and timing. Um, We have not yet decided when we'll be going to the ballot for that kind of taxpayer ask, and we're weighing kind of various pros and cons with different years going to the ballot. Um, Advancing station planning in primary markets, so in communities like Fort Collins that don't have a station, working with them to make their station planning start. Um, I'm sure many of you today have not heard of front range passenger rail, and we fully recognize that. So we have brought on consultants and are starting to really build our public brand to make sure that constituents across the state have at least heard about the train project. Um, as mentioned before, this is all about coalitions and partnerships so working to activate those to kind of build the space of supporters for the project. Um, I also mentioned that right now our general manager is a, kind of across the lawn at the legislature right now, working on an administrative cleanup bill. A big priority for us this fall or this um, spring is working on legislative conversations and kind of advancing funding through that realm. And then lastly, of course, trying to draw down the IIJ funding opportunities. So that's just kind of a slice of the pie of what we're working on this year. I believe that's my last slide, it is. I'm happy to take any questions. I know I spoke very quickly. So um, thank you all again so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much, Chrissy, and this is very exciting. I know we're gonna have quite a few questions from council members. I'll start first with uh, Councilmember member Hines.
4: Thank you, committee chair. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, thanks uh, for the briefing last week. Thank you for being a district Ten constituent um, I to two things first uh, when I uh, I had the before I got elected I had the pleasure of sitting on blueprint the uh, the plan uh, the citywide plan that talks about uh, our initiatives and in, uh, between now and 2040 and uh, in that process we did a lot of research including hearing from the state demographer that the city of Denver um, I know you're uh, front range focused, but here in the Denver, you know we learned we learned a lot about the city of Denver. Uh, the city of Denver is expecting an additional 200,000 people to move to the city by 2040. So um, interesting that the number uh, that you're getting probably also from the state demographer is an additional 3 million people. So that suggests we'll get another congressional seat. Thank you for the people who move here to allow us to get that. Um, but, uh, uh, but the video mentioned um, those folks will likely bring cars um, and so that's that's actually one thing that I've said as a candidate and now as an elected official um, as I mentioned in the briefing uh, a third of households on the um, west side of my district don't own cars at all um, so they are making a choice economic or lifestyle because of the planet because you know for many reasons uh, but they're making a choice not to have a car and uh, and so we want to Celebrate um, uh, alternatives to cars. So, um, you know, freedom, safety, and access. We all deserve the freedom to get from A to B safely, no matter how we choose to get there. And uh, and so, to the, your video's point, about three million new residents, and they will mostly bring cars. If we don't create viable alternatives to cars, including a broad and inviting pedestrian experiences and good sidewalks. Um, A uh, an area for protected bike lanes and scooters uh, so that they have a place to go that aren't our sidewalks Um, and uh, and then also uh, other alternatives such as bus and rail so um, if we don't provide all those uh, alternatives, then of course those 200,000 people who moved to the city of Denver or 3 million who moved to the state of Colorado will bring at least. 200,000 or 3 million more cars. So um, that will be very difficult for Denver to uh, ingest or to support because as again, well, again, as the video said, um, our infrastructure is not built for another 30% growth of uh, the population in the city of Denver. So uh, I'm really hopeful that we can uh, move front range passenger rail forward quickly and that's actually my second thing how long do you think it will take to get this realized and why isn't it shorter
8: you know it's funny i was working on some public comment responses today and i i did that exact response um we want to set realistic expectations and we want to design a robust project that meets community needs and so given what we learned from kind of best practices across the country we anticipate kind of a 10 to 15 year timeline for that kind of Pueblo to Fort Collins service we also recognize that to Councilman Hines' point that's not soon enough for some of us and so I will say sort of state leaders are looking at what could possibly be done to sort of activate a more of a phased approach to the project to make it happen faster Um, I think in terms of why can't it happen on a dime um, my perspective is a few things a big part of its funding Given the way that Tabor laws work in our state, it's challenging to raise funding just like through legislative process. And so we need to go to the voters and that obviously takes extra time. Additionally, we're looking to use federal funding. And I think understandably, when you want to use federal funding, they want you to follow their rules. So knowing that we have to follow a NEPA process and their service planning process, it adds time to this. Um, So I will say that it, it, it can't in some ways go faster just because of the nature of the planning process. I also mentioned that we're looking to operate our service on existing freight lines, and we've been told that's kind of the best way to get a service up and running, as opposed to sort of the high-speed rail California examples where it's been 20 years and we've seen nothing. And so as part of that, using freight lines, we have to have strong agreements to the freight railroads. Um, I too wish it could be faster, but I think that that's kind of the sort of the why about why we have this timeframe
4: in a phased approach uh, union stations already built ensure that the logistical challenges of heavy rail being adjacent but not the same as commuter rail yeah. um is it possible to uh does the rail exist now and and maybe we could have as you mentioned front uh fort collins doesn't have a station at all so we have to figure that out but we already have a station here in denver so maybe the rail could start by servicing some of the uh I think nine destinations along the front range and um at you know and then flesh it out from there as Fort Collins example as an example comes online then that could be a stop but we could just start tomorrow with Union Station. Later today with no, Union Station.
8: Tomorrow. Um, in some ways absolutely yes and in some ways a little more challenging. Um, In order to run freight train to run passenger trains on freight corridors once you get about above i think it's three trains a day you have to install safety improvements called positive train control and there are a lot of um really important safety considerations we have to put into play in order to operate train service so part of it is the tracks are there but they need a little bit of upgrades in order to be passenger ready so that kind of advances the time frame a little bit but to your point um denver you know looking at ridership modeling that's still being kind of iterated on from past studies we recognize how important denver is to the system and how denver is such a key destination place and so i think it is very fair to say that given the importance of denver and given sort of where it is in its development process it would definitely be part of an initial service phase
4: and um front range passenger rail it would it be similar to this might be an unfair question but our commuter rail um, for people with disabilities, you have to go up on this pedestal. Um, uh, that's a place that no able-bodied people go. And so then there's this, you know, disconnection from the rest of your um, group. And, uh, but BRT, um, which is also not front-range passenger rail, is, uh, is designed to have at-grade boarding. Do you know if front-range passenger rail is, uh, do you know the, what the thought is there?
8: We appreciate that the industry best practices level boarding. We're looking to we're looking to optimize that approach.
4: Optimize level boarding. So it make it have, even no, better than level boarding. Is that what you're saying?
8: I'm saying we're looking to use level boarding for the train set. That's correct.
4: Got it. Okay. Yeah. Super. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you. And I uh, just one other comment. So I chair the biz committee that the air you know the airport reports to. Um, there are a lot of uh, logistical challenges. For people with disabilities to get on a plane load first unload last sometimes they forget us um so uh then so uh level boarding for uh so i drive a lot um you know if i'm going to go visit my uh, family in texas or whatever um but i could see that a train particularly with level boarding might be a game changer for uh, for those who um or front range passenger rail might be a game changer for those who don't own cars like the people in my district but also um you know people with disabilities who uh you know other modes of national level transit could be challenging or or maybe impossible so thank you for uh, for working on this and again thank you for the briefing thank you committee
0: chair Uh, thank you councilmember hines uh councilwoman romero campbell
3: Thank you committee chair um actually you uh you answered a few of the questions in the um for councilman heinz so i do have one additional
5: one on slide 10 it talks about a 90 10 split federal local who is the local that we're talking about so
3: it's a two-part question who pays for this and then we talked about percentages but what is the how much does it cost what, what dollar amount are you yeah. expecting?
8: Great question. So who is local is a really good question. Um, there are a variety of existing sources that could be utilized to make that local match. Um, for example, ooh, I'm gonna screw up my numbers. Was it 283 last year that the state legislature passed that was an IIJA matching funds bill that gives CDOT, I think, up to 44 million? That sound right-ish? to to advance that kind of local match so it's that sort of funding source um as well as looking at potential sources that exist from other partners and so i think at this point in time it's looking at using those sort of sources that already exist um to your question about costs we don't have the determined cost number yet i think it's fair to say that we're looking in probably the sort of two to four billion dollar range for the uh fort collins to pueblo kind of full project
6: 10 percent of, of
3: that what do <laughs> you say
6: <Yeah.
3: laughs> two or four billion um so would that 10 would ten, roughly 10 percent of that would be matched at the local level up and down the corridor
8: great question i'm just trying to do no, something no, like,
3: no. i'm doing really simple math no so i love just, it i'm
8: loving it it's great so how do i say this in the best way possible what's really interesting is that we are at a place in the planning process whereby we still need to do the environmental clearance the NEPA Mm -hmm. process and Mm -hmm. so um, we are not unfortunately at the place where we're quite ready to go for the capital construction dollars at this point in time my sense is that the local match that will be needed in order to galvanize some of that initial dollars to advance final planning final design final environmental clearance um, is a different degree of local match than the kind that would be necessary to bring down the, the you know 90s split for the capital, right? It's a very different kind of number we're talking about. Um, but also, you know, when we go to the ballot and depending upon if we're successful and, and kind of when that money starts to come in, that locally generated revenue would definitely be a source of local match for further um, projects. Also, I will add that Chris um, Nevitt is a chair of finance committee. So if anything I'm saying sounds squishy on the number side, <laughs> feel free to put your PhD to work and well, I, uh, you know. <laughs> You've we'll just been blessed. <laughs>
6: uh, thank you very much. I don't have any other questions. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh,
0: thank you, Councilwoman Romero-Campbell. Councilwoman Alviberez.
6: Thank you, Chair. Uh, this is really exciting. I happen to travel down south quite often, so I'm very excited about the possibility of this. Um, I was just looking at the presentation and I see that there's primary stations. Will there be other stations or is it just the primary stations?
8: Great question. Um, for the initial, 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 um, we are looking at nine primary stations as our first kind of kind of the planning process. And I think from our perspective, if we get nine done and is successful, we feel really good about ourselves. We also recognize that if it goes well, we have room to expand and grow and, and kind of make the service more robust. At that place in time we get our called secondary stations, and those are stations that are, um, perhaps they don't get every single stop, perhaps they get just a few stops a day, and we be stopping more frequently, so it's kind of a slower service. So we're definitely right now exploring kind of our methodologies and our outreach to local communities to better define that conversation. Um, so I would say secondary is very possible, probably not from a day one perspective.
6: Awesome, and as far as, You know, like the presentation said, and like Councilman Heinz said, that that we are intending to use current rail system, correct?
8: The current railroad, yeah, yes.
6: Um, So with that, as I mentioned, I travel down to Pueblo often, and something terrible that recently happened was the collapsing of the bridge. And then there was this finger pointing of the bridge belongs to the railroad. No, it belongs to CDOT. Um, And so that's very concerning to me. Um, what is the thought around those bridges and the bridges throughout the rail system?
8: Yeah, it's obviously a real concern and one that you know we hear about, especially in light of um, East Palestine. So I don't, you know, I think it's one of those challenging things whereby, in some ways, that's kind of beyond our jurisdictional preview, preview, at least from a starting point. We recognize how important that is and recognize, in terms of to get you know voters on board for this, we have to address that challenge. Um, I will say that right now the state legislature is working through some freight safety matters which would ideally kind of address this issue as well as some federal conversations. Um, But for right now, that is one of those key things to continue to iterate on. Great. Um, And would this be on the November ballot? Sorry, what'd you say? Would
6: this be on the November ballot?
8: To be determined. Um, We're kind of looking at the modeling and some polling right now and kind of making a decision later this spring.
6: Do you have the sites picked for all of these besides Denver's Union Station?
8: We have, great question. Um, we have fairly kind of nice dots on the map for the nine markets, but we want to work with a few of the local communities to kind of better confirm and drill down on those dots. But um, generally speaking, we have a sense of the nine, yes.
6: Great. And um, will those be released publicly or are they on here somewhere?
8: Uh, you mean the actual intersections right um great question i don't have that publicly available i mean by that i mean i have yet to make anything public at, at that level of scale i think just because in your 180 mile corridor it's hard to like have a map of that nature but we can definitely make that available
6: awesome and then yeah. my last question is like what can we do to support and help through this process
8: yeah that's a great question and i'm also going to ask um <laughs> director Nevet to add some some fuel to that i think in the immediate term, I think it's really just as much as you can, kind of spreading the word and kind of letting people know that we exist and we are always available to go to briefings. I'm actually going to be in your neighborhood um, next in two weeks for a Baker Neighborhood Association briefing. So part of it is just that ground game of talking to people and getting people to know what, we're t- what our project is. I think as you reach people that have questions or concerns or inaccurate information, finding us is really helpful to kind of help correct that record. As we get closer to a ballot initiative and to some more of that kind of coalition building probably looking to leaders like you for official support endorsements of that nature so i guess i would just say you know take a screenshot, take a screenshot of your picture <laughs> find my information and let's stay in conversation as you hear more from the community members
6: great there was something else that popped into my mind but it escaped again but thank you so much i'll just email you if i remember what that other question was perfect thank, thank you. you thank you council chair thank committee you, chair <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you councilwoman uh chris nevitt did, did you want to add anything to that i know chrissy tried to do a, a warm handoff to you there was there any additional points on Councilwoman? I'll be there is question no no uh and, uh, after
8: chrissy yep. <laughs> and yes he's going to anyways
1: <laughs> no i, I thank um, you councilman i was just going to say how can i'm I sorry mr nevitt uh will, will we don't you don't know you yourself? anymore <laughs> can you uh, please introduce <laughs> yourself oh, fair enough sorry about that uh i'm Chris Nevitt, uh, I
7: represent the uh, Dr. Cog on the Front Range Passenger Rail District Board.
1: And um, your question about whether or not I have anything to add to the excellent presentation from Chrissy Bright, the answer would be no.
7: How could I possibly top that presentation? So if, if you have any questions for
1: me, happy to answer them,
0: but uh, I have nothing further to add. Thank you, Mr. Nevitt. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Councilwoman Lewis.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chair. I have a few questions. Um, The first is uh, regarding the identification and development program that you mentioned, that 500K. Uh, What is that 500K being utilized for
8: as a part of this project? Great question. So, uh, this is kind of a fun one to explain as well. Um, There is sort of a three-step process of this kind of passenger rail boot camp. $500,000 is being used to advance some of this um, some of this planning work what's really quirky is that colorado was starting to work with the federal bobo administration on service planning and kind of building this new passenger rail system before iija was passed before that core id program was developed and so we actually entered this three-step process at step two which makes us kind of ahead of most of the country and so that five hundred thousand dollars is being used to um Sound really nerdy. Compare the scope of work of the initial SDP we're doing with the new kind of directive from I from FRA. There's any difference in that um, in that kind of scope of work? than using that to advance the environmental clearance clearance process and station planning local communities. And the, do you all have already projected the ridership? Great question. Um, we should be getting those numbers this spring. Um, we have our planning committee next Wednesday. I'm getting our first update then. So um ask me in a month okay
5: (laughs) sure you got it um i I appreciate that um have you all projected Mm -hmm. the overall cost of what the project would actually take
8: i said two to four billion um so i think i i could i think that's the number i feel comfortable saying i think that's about right
5: yeah no that's checks
8: yeah yeah
5: honestly i mean when we're looking at this at rtd that just from denver to boulder um longmont i think it's like 1.5 billion to 1.7 billion. So double that maybe makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. I appreciate
8: it. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you. Councilwoman Lewis and Councilwoman Albedrez.
6: Thank you. I remembered my question. (laughs) It was what do you anticipate um, ticket prices being? And what is your strategy around safety for people using the rail? Or are those obviously things I know you're just beginning so with that in mind?
8: Great questions. Um, I don't want to give you a ticket price number right now because I don't think it'll be accurate, but I think that obviously is a key question and there is that interesting balance between um, making sure it's accessible and affordable and it will definitely be a service that has, um, kind of like what RTD has sort of a, a pass for lower income riders and those with certain kind of criteria. This will also be a system whereby you have um, discounted rates for certain riders, but I, I don't yet know what our base rate will be, so I don't want to give you a fake number um, in terms of safety, that's a that's a great question. I think that some ways that passenger rail is different from other kinds of rail services is that it's usually a ticketed system, so you usually have an assigned, often have an assigned seat, and from there, you know, someone, the conductor will be on board and will verify that. Um, additionally, I think because um, even even in trips when there isn't a um, assigned seat, and there is conductors on board that are kind of at the station on the train, able to kind of monitor that um, he's on the train as well. Thank you, and thank you yeah.
6: again, committee, sir, chair.
0: Uh, thank you, Councilman Alvarez. Okay. And Councilman Lewis is back in the queue.
6: I'm sorry, I just had
5: one more question that I didn't get to, I apologize. <clears throat> do you all have any plans in your, do you have any plans in your planning process to include folks that would potentially, that would be potential riders? and how you execute um, your plan moving forward and how you maybe center their experiences in your planning processes?
8: Yeah, that's a really, really important and good question. Um, It's kind of a many-pronged approach. Um, So right now there are outreach consultants that are working on the service development plan and they are holding regular webinars and taking public comment and things of that nature. And so there is sort of that, that formal outreach happening through this planning process and there's a website for people to look at. Um, Additionally, we recognize that many people that would be writers don't participate in kind of traditional project public outreach. Mm -hmm. We wanna meet people where they're at. Um, For example, I met with green Latinos last week and a big part of our conversation was, you know, your writers, your community members, your members like mentioned in this project, how can we possibly meet with you? And so um, that is kind of one level of it is sort of our, our working with our grass tops to find their communities and setting up meetings with them. We have the formal outreach through the service development plan process. And then I had mentioned also that um, we have the current challenge of our name not being well known. We're bringing on help for that. Mm -hmm. And so as part of that, we are looking to set up more forums, more community outreach. Um, Obviously we just made the video, which is a helpful way to learn more about it. Um, We're actually, we're gonna be at Bike to Work Day on Friday and we have little train tickets with QR codes that go to an online questionnaire. Um, So we are starting that process and i open to any feedback you have about key groups or key ways to connect with people. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Uh, thank you councilwoman lewis I, I love that question as well and, and in closing chrissy uh great presentation appreciate the information i pre- appreciate the inspiration of what this could be um we've uh, some folks may be feeling uh, we've seen this movie before um with uh, fast tracks and so my only question to you and obviously there are going to be many more questions as we go through this um what are the lessons learned and especially as you see boulder and fort collins on this list What are the lessons learned from our fast-track experience? um, Are taxpayers involved in that process and investing heavily, um, but yet never receiving the benefits that were proposed up front before they were taxed? Um, What what are the lessons learned that you are willing to share? And obviously this will be a longer discussion.
8: Absolutely. Um, I think maybe three to four come to mind. I think the first one is that, the northwest rail, that kind of the unfinished, the, prim, the, the biggest unfinished line between on the fast track system, it would, is looking, well, was looking to use the freight right away, and now would be looking to use the freight tracks themselves. And my understanding is that that process perhaps didn't bring the freights into the conversation early enough. Um, we're really unique because we have the freight railroads on our board, so if nothing else, they're in the conversation and they're listening to us. You know, every month on, you know, in the committees. Um, additionally, as part of that kind of federal planning process, we have to do what's called RTC modeling, and that is freight modeling, whereby we have a we work with the freights to you know, model their data to look at their current operations, and from there determine what kind of arrangements are needed to add passengers to the line. So kind of from the get-go, we're working with the freight railroads. Um, I think just from a personal analysis of Fast Tracks, um, It is really exciting how they made a plan for the entire metro area. And they said, we're gonna do all of this and we're gonna do it all at once. I think that as part of our approach, we're trying to take more of a a more limited approach of we're gonna start with one spine, we're gonna nail that spine down, and then we are hopeful that as we make that successful service, we can expand, but we're not going to, from day one, bite off more than we can chew. Um, I think that one thing that is a common practice learned from rail corridors all across the country and it's completely understandable is the balance between designing a strong service that people want to ride that gets them where they need to be on time in a reliable way decent travel time good experience and kind of making that sort of service um, compared to making a service that best fits kind of political whims and by that I mean everybody getting a station which inherently means that it doesn't, it takes really, really long and it's not a very competitive choice. Um, our enabling legislation set us up so that we have to be competitive with cars and our travel times. Um, so, competitive is, you know, a bit of a fluid word, but to me, it means it's worth taking, it's worth driving by train. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a comparable experience. Um, I would also say that, again, as part of that station conversation, um, we have a priority to put stations in kind of downtown activated centers, kind of key employment and destination centers. And just from day one, starting a service that really is where people are and where they want to be, um, as opposed to I think some of the, a lot of let's just say other transit services often put the tracks, put the service um, where there's kind of least sort of uh, you know where is their open right away and where is their least resistance or where is their necessary votes. And we're really trying to find that balance between the political success and the technical technical project success. Um, I will admit that in 2004, when Fast Tracks was passed, I was a high school student in Denver, so I'm not gonna pretend that I was intimately part of the conversation. I just came back from college one year and there was a train at the airport and it was a whole new world for me. So, um, Director Nevitt, if you wanna add anything, but I think that the analysis is sort of, bring the freights on, get your costing right, don't buy off more than you can chew and try to design a system that actually serves people.
0: Thank you, Chrissy Bright, thank you, Chris Nevitt. I appreciate it, I would offer Uh, former Councilwoman uh, Debbie Ortega has an exhaustive research on passenger safety if you have not engaged with her I think it would be um, recommended that you may consider that uh, for future work so thank you both look forward to engaging in a deeper dialogue on this and I'm extremely excited about this so thank you very much Um, there's nothing else on the agenda we have a few items for consent Um, any questions that uh, council members have please give those to Luke Palmezzano And with that, we are adjourned.